The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 25th of November. Professor Dominic Duar presents a COVID-19 update and covers origins of SARS-CoV-2, what's new in diagnostics, SARS-CoV-2 variants, and waves of COVID-19. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come and speak to you. Uh, my name is Dominic Dwyer. I'm a medical virologist and infectious diseases physician uh, at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. Uh, I'm also the uh, State Director of Public Health Pathology uh, for New South Wales Health Pathology. So responsible really for all aspects of laboratory testing in the public sector uh, in New South Wales. Uh, look, where we're, are with, uh, where we're at with SARS-CoV-2 is obviously uh, you know, significant and people are well aware of this. Uh, the first alert to SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 came at the end of December in 2019 uh, and as of a couple of days ago, we're at the stage on the right there where we've had over a quarter of a billion uh, cases with over five million deaths. Uh, and we know that those numbers are a gross underestimate of the total number of cases. Even in Australia, we probably have maybe three to five times the number of cases uh, than have actually been recorded. So I'm going to cover a couple of things in this update, uh, some stuff about the origins of SARS-CoV-2, some of the very new things in diagnostics, particularly around rapid antigen testing, some of the issues related to variants of SARS-CoV-2, Delta variant and so on, that's been got, getting a lot of airplay. Uh, and also, uh, just a, a quick uh, summary of the waves of uh, COVID-19 that we're seeing uh, around the world and what that might mean. So in terms of the origins of SARS-CoV-2, uh, what I'm really reflecting on is work that I did as part of the World Health Organization investigation or, or review of what happened in the very early days in Wuhan uh, in 2019 and early 2020. So we, a small group were asked to, to, to go to Wuhan uh, on behalf of the WHO to review what had happened. Uh, and the aim was to see, well, what really happened in those first few weeks, but also to set in, in place a framework for doing the further studies that are needed to investigate origins of, of uh, uh, COVID-19, in fact as a marker for what might happen with future pandemics. So this is just a map of Wuhan uh, to show you that it sits on the Yangtze River. That's uh, about 12 million people. Uh, everybody, yeah, or most people seem to be living in high rise. Uh, and uh, certainly in the kind of downtown part of, of Wuhan, uh, some of the uh, wet markets uh, and also some of the hospitals that took the first cases of, of, of COVID-19. The key part of what we were doing was really looking at the very early cases. So this is a, a publication uh, that looked at the epidemic curve of, of, of COVID-19 in Wuhan. And on the left-hand side, you see marked in red, those cases that occurred in December 2019. And 
we were really charged at looking at those uh, 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 cases. And this mission was about investigating the origins, not about investigating the responses to, to uh, this new pathogen. And of course, one can spend a lot of time commenting on how well or how badly uh, uh, countries did in, in terms of handling the pandemic. But if you look at those first few cases in December, uh, there were about 170 odd cases. About half of them had direct connection with the famous wet market in Wuhan, the Huanan uh, market. But importantly, about half of them didn't have a direct or, or recognised connection with the market. And this became important. If you wanted to look at one thing about the uh, 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 responses to SARS-CoV-2, you can see this on this slide, in fact. So that the red asterisk on the left there uh, tells you when the first sequence of SARS-CoV-2 was available, the first viral sequence. And the asterisk on the right-hand side tells you when the Chinese authorities released information about that sequence. And there's about a 10 to 12 day gap uh, in that. And that's actually really important because uh, if you have the sequence of the virus, you can develop laboratory tests and you can work out what treatments may be effective and so on. Uh, and that delay in providing the sequence was probably pretty significant in, in terms of uh, spread of the virus. This is just a picture of the Huanan uh, market that we visited in uh, uh, Wuhan. Uh, and uh, the, even though the, the market is now closed, these pictures that we took uh, give you an idea of why this is such a good place for an outbreak uh, to either amplify or get started. Dark, narrow corridors, uh, open drainage pits with, uh, uh, that animals were, were placed in and we know that there were live animals in the market. And on the right-hand side uh, are sleeping quarters above where vendors were selling uh, uh, stuff to eat. Uh, and so you can just see what a perfect uh, uh, scenario this would be for an outbreak of any uh, uh, food-related or animal-related uh, uh, disease. And then you put the market in the context of the city. So this is a picture of a market and you can see in the background the way most people in the city live in you know, 50 storey apartment buildings. And so you can easily see how once something gets out of a marketplace, for example, how it could easily spread to large proportion of the population. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Well, hello, my name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist. And I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, mm. flu went away. And we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also the influenza vaccination rate in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jab. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza <laughs> means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 
were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2022. And it's probably going to start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. A COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation. Flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jabs in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jabs available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March. The other thing that was also important was looking at some of the very early sequences of the virus that were generated. And this is a you know, complicated slide, but what it really shows are two things. First of all, we, there are already some subtle variations in the virus in those first few sequences. Uh, and even in the, the sequences from patients very, very early in, the, in those early cases, uh, so the ones marked in blue there, even those ones are already showing some genetic variability. So the implication of that is that the virus had been probably circulating there for some weeks or even months before uh, uh, there was an outbreak of severe disease. Uh, and so that there was already transmission going on in the community, maybe in November, uh, even earlier, some people have suggested, uh, before cases were first identified. So by the time it was recognised, things had already got out of hand. Now, there's been more information come forward in the, the sort of eight months or so that we're away. One of them was that initially there had, we were told there had been no live animals in the market, but now there's a paper that comes out to show that there were live animals in the market. And that some of these animals, which are often farmed for eating purposes that we might regard as wild, things like raccoon dogs or uh, or civets or, or a range of other animals, that these animals are actually readily infected with SARS-CoV-2. So if you've got wild, if you've got animals in the market that are alive that can carry the virus, you can clearly see how this might lead to spread to humans. And this is what we saw with SARS back in 2003. And this is just a picture again of that same animal market or same market that I showed you earlier that when it was empty. These are the animals that were photographed in that marketplace in the months before the outbreak started. And then there's been a whole series of papers come out in the last eight months or so that show uh, uh, that all the viral features that allow SARS-CoV-2 to infect humans are present in viruses in bats in the wild. 
Okay, so there'd been discussion about, oh, could this have been genetically engineered or was it a laboratory leak or were people doing nefarious things with viruses in the labs? But all of the features, things like the furin cleavage site, the tropism for specific receptors and so on, all of that stuff is present naturally in the wild. So you don't need to postulate unusual mechanisms uh, for this vir sort of virus to emerge. It's all there in nature. Now I'm going to move on to diagnostics uh, and there are a couple of things that I'm going to talk about. First of all, as I alluded to in the earlier, if you have access to the sequences, uh, you can develop diagnostic tests. So the genome was first made available on the 10th of January 2020 uh, and in fact this was released by Sydney University um, and, and so getting away perhaps from some of the political uh, constraints on releasing data. Uh, that allowed us at, at Westmead Hospital to develop PCR tests within uh, 10 days or so, 10 or 12 days. We were able to grow the virus uh, and that meant that we could provide material to other laboratories in New South Wales and elsewhere in the country to get underway with their own testing. Uh, we also saw the virus on electron microscopy uh, and importantly provided whole genome sequencing of these viruses. Uh, and, and that, as I'll show later on, became really important in helping the public health management. In other words, identifying clusters of virus in certain community groups or in workplaces uh, or in travellers, all of those sorts of things. And importantly, also, uh, we were able to rapidly develop uh, some in-house serologic assays to look for antibodies to the virus. Now, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of PCR. Everybody has uh, experience with that. But the, the difficult thing has been, if you have a positive PCR, are you actually infectious to other people? And we know that people who have COVID-19 can be positive uh, often for weeks and occasionally even months. Um, but are they infectious to anybody else? So we've done a lot of work about uh, around growing the virus in, from these sorts of samples to say, well, if you can grow the virus, then that implies that you're infectious. I mean, it's not necessarily direct, but in general terms, you can say that. Um, and there's no doubt that as the CT value of the PCR, which is a measure of the viral load in the sample, as that CT value rises, which is an indication of a dropping viral load, uh, then once it gets to a certain figure, say over 30 odd, 32 or something like that, the chance of growing virus is very, very difficult, unless the person's immunosuppressed and so on. So we can now use a threshold for the CT value to say, well, if it's this sort of threshold, it's unlikely that the person uh, is going to be contagious to other people. And that becomes very important in managing people in hospital and getting them out of hospital. The other thing that's getting a lot of airplay around diagnostics is the rapid antigen tests. Uh, and there are pros and cons with these uh, tests. The biggest problem is that they're less sensitive than PCR. Okay? But you can argue, well, that does, does that actually matter? Because they're going to be positive in people who uh, have obviously got the disease and have plenty of virus in their clinical sample. And if the CT value of the PCR drops over time, then the rapid antigen test may become negative, but if the CT value uh, suggests a lower viral load, well, these people are less likely to be infectious, if that makes sense. The other thing is that rapid antigen tests, of course, are quick. That 
hence the name, of course, and you can get a result in 20 minutes. But they're a single sort of point test. In other words, if you have a whole workforce that needs to be screened when they come to work at you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, then you've got to have a couple of people there doing all of these tests because you can only essentially do one at a time. Uh, so you don't get the high throughput like we can with our PCR tests. The other thing is too that if you start doing these tests at home or in your workplace or in your surgery and so on, if you're generating results that are unconnected with, to either public health authorities or to laboratory information systems, then these results sort of go out into the ether and nobody necessarily knows that a test is positive. So I think there are issues with these tests and they're not as easy to roll out uh, to be useful uh, as one might think. And for example, the UK has done millions and millions of these tests. Every person uh, has, you know, has these tests at home. You can buy them in the supermarket, all that sort of thing. Yet, even though they've been used extensively in the UK, UK has one of the worst records in reducing the transmission of the virus to within the community. So just having access to a test doesn't necessarily tell you uh, about how to control the spread of the disease in the community, and that's important. One of the ways around it is to say, oh, well, if the tests are less sensitive, uh, let's uh, do them frequently. Let's do them every day, for example, or every second day or something like that. That's well and good because you will capture eventually people who are becoming positive. Uh, but the trouble is there's a cost to doing all that. It still requires people mostly to have a swab done. I mean, you can do some on saliva. They're even less sensitive. So uh, in other words, they're not as easy to use and not as valuable as one might think, yet they do have a role. So a number of organisations, things like the Public Health Laboratory Network, the Communicable Diseases Network, the College of Pathologists and so on, have made some general statements about these rapid antigen tests. They can be used for screening in certain situations if local authorities think that's worthwhile. And a lot of that is about getting people back to work or kids back to school and so on. But it's not a replacement uh, to PCR. And certainly in people who have any respiratory symptoms, PCR is by far and away the most important test to do. Uh, it's one thing rolling all of these tests out, it's a, another thing to understand are they working properly? Uh, and the FDA and also the TGA in Australia, the FDA in the US, have had great problem with a number of the assays that have been put on the marketplace and that they don't perform to the level that the manufacturers would claim. Uh, and then there's a whole issue of getting access to these um, and, and their ease of use and whether people can do it themselves, whether it's better off done by a scientist, etc., etc. So they've all got to be uh, uh, rolled out. And previously it's been recommended that a medical practitioner or somebody like that needs to supervise their use. And I think there's merit in that. But of course now there's a vogue for buying them in the supermarket and doing them yourself. Uh, well, fine, but then that probably further inhibits the reliability of the testing uh, and you are very dependent on people doing the test properly, uh, telling <laughs> the result positive or negative to themselves and indeed to other people. So uh, the point of all of this discussion is to say it's perhaps not as easy as one might think. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Pertussis vaccinations protect our seniors. The fatality rate for pertussis aged over 50 is higher than for one to five-year-old children. Despite this threat, 
Pertussis vaccination coverage in over 65s is unknown. This contrasts with influenza vaccination at 80%, pneumococcal vaccination at 40%, and shingles vaccination at 25% coverage. As with all adults, people over 65 should get pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Protect against pertussis. The other thing is the, the role of serology. So in other words, antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and there are certain indications for doing this. It's useful in making a retrospective diagnosis in someone who may have had the infection but didn't get tested at the time or had the infection overseas and came back, etc., etc. We also use it uh, in the occasional examples of false negative PCR tests where we think, well, surely that person had, 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 had COVID-19, but the PCR was negative. And you can go back and do the serology on that. It can also be used to indeed confirm unexpected PCR results or even false positive PCR results, particularly when the disease is rare in the community. So when the disease is rare and you do a lot of PCR tests, you're as likely to turn up you know, plenty of uh, uh, false positive results as you are true positive results. So the serology can be useful. Uh, and sometimes we do it to look for asymptomatic infection. And this might become a bit more important as more and more people are vaccinated. And so if they get COVID-19, their clinical disease might be mild or non-existent. Uh, so in that situation, uh, the serology might be helpful. Um, we can also look at the kinetics. In other words, what happens to your antibody levels over time, either after vaccination or after uh, natural infection. Uh, and and, and that generates a lot of interest, particularly around vaccination. You know, how long will these vaccines last for and so on? Not saying that the data is, is necessarily helpful, but this is the way you're going to go about determining the, the, the longevity of vaccinations and the protection after natural infection. And then also we've used uh, serology to do sero surveys uh, in, in Sydney and New South Wales and around the country um, uh, as a marker of how much disease got into the community uh, that wasn't picked up with PCR tests and so on. And this is just an example of the kinetics of infection. And basically, this is a whole series of people that had COVID, that have done antibodies. And basically, as you can see over quite some weeks, uh, 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 the antibody teeters drop over time. Early in infection, of course, you have IgA and IgM uh, as a marker of acute infection and, and IgG. Uh, and the IgM and IgA drop off very quickly within you know, a week or two, two couple of weeks. Uh, but the IgG will persist for a long, longer period of time. But it does drop over time. And the question is whether that drop over time, either after vaccination or after natural infection, does that mean you're at risk of second infection? And that's a kind of really big question. The trouble is that the correlates of protection against reinfection the serology is helpful, it's a marker, and the neutralising antibody tests, which are not easy to do and not commercially available, are probably the best. Um, we know that the level of antibodies correlates with disease, so the sicker you are, the more likely to have higher antibodies and so on. As I said, it drops off over time. Um, but some people will go to negative 
uh, after, uh, after infection or vaccination. And some of the commercial assays that are available are actually not as sensitive as the sort of in-house uh, assays that, that we use, for example, in our laboratory. Um, and, and so sometimes the results on commercial assays are a little bit difficult to interpret. And we do know, of course, that reinfection can occur. Um, uh, people can get COVID twice. They can get it after vaccination. They can get it after natural infection. So uh, kind of how we, we manage that is, is tricky. And the last part I'm going to talk about is the variants of SARS-CoV-2. Everyone knows about the Delta strain and so on. So these variants arise for a number of reasons. There, it's an RNA virus and these viruses mutate like flu and HIV and hep C and the like. Uh, also vaccination uh, and indeed antiviral treatment and monoclonal antibodies and so on themselves can develop resistant uh, mutations and so on. So there's a number of reasons why mutations develop. Then of course the way humans behave um, uh, also affects things so that uh, um, uh, if people happen to have a mutation or a variant that's problematic and they spread it to a whole lot of people because they don't adhere to regulations or hand washing or mask wearing, all of those sorts of things, then that's how these variants of course spread. Human health is also important so that we know that these variants may appear in people who are immunosuppressed and shed virus for longer periods of time than otherwise healthy people. And in that situation, uh, uh, you know, knowing that about maybe roughly 10% of the population are immunosuppressed in one form or another, and of course the levels of immunosuppression vary a lot. But, but in that situation, that might be uh, uh, the way that mutations and variants appear. And of course, just because you have a, a mutation or a variant, does it actually mean anything clinically? Uh, so you've got to understand with these mutations, uh, does it mean something clinically? Is it more transmissible? Uh, is it more severe? Is it less severe? Um, and again, not all of this information is necessarily available. Now these are the variants of concern that have been identified. There's the original sort of Wuhan strain, if you like, and then there's been the alpha and beta strains and the gamma strains that have emerged in various countries. But now it's really the delta strain that's sort of taken, around, taken off around the world. Uh, that originally came from India, um, but, but it really has spread. Uh, so just going back, there's also uh, kind of other variants that are of interest that are being watched because we don't yet have the clinical data as to how uh, transmissible or how clinically significant they are. So there's a constant monitoring process uh, of that uh, around the world. Uh, so this is just to show that in sort of towards the end of last year, 2020, uh, at that time we had this in grey, the sort of uh, kind of initial strain, the Wuhan strain for want of a better term. And in a number of countries, some of these newer strains, beta and alpha, started to appear. But now we're in the situation in, in the sort of green there, where the Delta virus has really taken off and clearly has increased transmissibility compared to, to other uh, viruses. And this is, you can also take this sort of work down to a local level. This is what we call a fish plot, which is a way of looking at all the viruses, for example, that, that, that we've been testing in our lab at Westmead uh, uh, since the outbreak began. And you can see on the left-hand side that the different colours reflect different sort of variants and clusters and so on. Um, and of course, heaps of different clusters and variants because people were coming into Australia from a whole range of different countries that had outbreaks. 
Then we introduced border closures and so on. Most of these then went away. And then we had, for example, last uh, earlier in the year, uh, an outbreak again uh, from a, an escape from quarantine. So that was really then one virus that essentially spread in the community. And so the amount of or the number of variants in the community in New South Wales was much, much less. It was a much more homogeneous cluster of viruses than what we'd seen in the beginning of the pandemic. So we continue this sort of monitoring as a way of understanding what viruses are coming into, for example, New South Wales. And without going into detail, as I said, the Delta variant is more transmissible than the original strains of, of SARS-CoV-2 and indeed more transmissible than flu and uh, even Spanish flu and SARS and MERS, which are other coronaviruses. Uh, so, so this becomes really important and that's why we're seeing waves of Delta virus in other countries, including in Europe uh, in particular uh, and the US, uh, where, where, where the Delta variant is spreading uh, even though people are, uh, have got reasonable levels of vaccination, uh, even though the disease severity, fortunately, is much reduced. And of course, that's the natural aim of vaccination. And as I said, you can have waves of this and waves in pandemics are well understood in influenza. So with all the influenza pandemics, we know that there have been waves of infection that have occurred. And sometimes, for example, in the 1918-19 flu, the second wave was much more severe than the first wave uh, in, in terms of outcomes. Um, that hasn't quite been the case for SARS-CoV-2, but it just points out that it's not necessarily just the beginning that you've got to worry about, but the success of waves that occur. And this is sort of where we are globally with the different waves. Uh, and, and you can see, for example, in red, the, the big outbreaks in the US and the big waves and so on. And then you can see in, in light blue uh, an uptick uh, on the right-hand side, which is another wave starting in Europe uh, and progressing uh, very rapidly through, throughout uh, Europe. There are a number of things that drive these waves. One is the virus itself and the variants that we've talked about and so on. The other thing is the uh, equality or inequality of vaccination coverage. Uh, it's also the way people behave, the responses to pandemics. And by that, I mean the political respons responses. So for example, in some countries that had reasonable but not great rates of vaccination uh, suddenly released uh, everything up to back to normal kind of thing, which, which allowed variants to spread and cause problems. And I think you could say in some countries in Europe and uh, the UK, for example, this has been a particular problem. So even when you open up uh, uh, back to, to sort of normal life, you can't just do it. It's not a yes or no thing. It's going, it got to be gradual and one has to maintain ongoing things like uh, 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 perhaps reduced numbers of people in certain locations or transport, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the way humans behave, people get perhaps tired of being in lockdown and so on, or perhaps a bit blasé about mask use or hand washing, all of that sort of stuff. So you end up with a number of things that contribute uh, to, to driving pandemic waves. And this is my last slide, which looks at the vaccination rates around the world. And I put it up because this is from uh, in fact, from the New York Times, which has a very good sort of interactive thing for vaccination, if, you, if you're interested. Um, but in some countries, in the, the sort of darker the colouring, 
the better the vaccination rates. Um, and so, but there's plenty of countries, for example, in Africa and other parts of the world, uh, East Asia and so on, uh, and Eastern Europe, uh, that the vaccination rates are not good enough. So if you've got an inequality in vaccination um, and you've got areas particularly with poor vaccination, then that may well allow variants to appear and then spread and cause issue in countries that actually have reasonable vaccination rates. So there's, a, there's an argument for, you know, what do we need to do about vaccination, not just in New South Wales or in Australia or whatever, but indeed uh, worldwide. So look, I'll finish up there to saying that this is a, you know, clearly an ongoing process at the scientific and clinical level. Um, and and, and uh, uh, there are still a lot of questions that need to be answered. Um, uh, and, and we'll just have to see how, how time goes on uh, in Australia in terms of uh, uh, increasing travel and so on and what that might mean, uh, at least in a society that's quite well vaccinated. So thank you very much for, for, for this and uh, uh, if, uh, we may be able to answer questions if needs be. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.